If you would please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Our text today is one specific verse, but we'll be reading more as we go along. But it's verse number 6 in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Sunday is the first four of four Advent Sundays, the Sundays before Christmas. It is foundational to the Christian faith that Jesus was the Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and that the coming of the Messiah began a New Testament, a relationship between God and his people. Jesus did not replace or deny the expectations of these prophecies. Rather, he fulfilled them. And in verse number six, we find four titles, four royal titles that are given to this child who is to come. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it is my hope that in the next four Sundays, we will be able to study these four titles. We will look at each title, how the people originally understood them, and how Jesus fulfilled them, and how we as God's people see them today. Two things should be clear to us as we study this, and that is that the New Testament accounts of the coming of Jesus in his life rely heavily on the Old Testament. It isn't sort of a once upon a time this thing happened. It is these are the things that were foretold or promised in the Old Testament. And secondly, and we've seen this in the Christmases past, that the fulfilling of these promises are not as linear or as straightforward as we might hope or imagine. And so we find the New Testament writers, particularly the Gospel writers, viewing the Old Testament promises in ways that even all these centuries later, we're still maybe not comfortable, it's not quite clear how they got from point A to point B, because it it doesn't seem that, in fact, uh, what was written is, is fulfilled in Jesus. There was anticipation. There was fulfillment. There is the historical reality that Jesus came. doesn't always seem to be a, uh, an exact fit. The first title we'll look at today is Wonderful Counselor. But before we do that, we need to look at the context. And so if you will look, beginning at verse number one, we'll read the first seven verses here in Isaiah chapter nine. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. When Isaiah wrote this, Assyria was the world power at that time in the world. Having taken the northern part of Israel, what is known as Israel, the ten tribes, um, taking them into exile, they're gone. Judah is next. They're the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But a series of promises were made. The end result would be that Judah would in fact be delivered. Assyria would not take over Judah. There would be a time of peace and a season of great light and a time of endless peace with justice and righteousness forever, as we see in verse number 7. You'll notice that in verse number 1, two tribes of the ten are mentioned by name, that is Zebulun and Naphtali. They were mentioned with regard to the past. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But with regard to the future, we read, He will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. They set the stage, I think, for the rest of this passage. And so verse number one is critical because what Isaiah is presenting to us are contrasts. The contrast of the past, that this is what had happened to Zebulun and Aphtali, but also the contrast with the future in which a great light will shine on them. The two tribes to the north, Zebulun and Naphtali, were the first tribes to be taken by the Assyrians. Um, Piglath-Telezer III was the king of Assyria and had come in from the north and sort of worked his way south. And so these were the first two tribes that were taken. Located where they were, if you look at a map, if it's in your Bible, they're the northernmost tribes. They seem to be more susceptible to foreign influence. In fact, When Solomon built the temple, uh, he got a lot of timber from the north, from Lebanon, from King uh, Hiram of Tyre. And so he gave 20 villages from these two tribes to Hiram. So it's really quite remarkable. I mean, this is the land that God has given to his people. And Solomon is now giving it to a foreign, to a pagan king. Hiram wasn't happy with it, though. What kind of towns are these you have given me, my brother? So we don't know if that transaction finally took place or not. Uh, Hiram wasn't happy with it. We don't know if he settled or not. In Matthew, that's the past. In Matthew chapter 4, which is the future from what uh, Isaiah is writing, we read in Matthew chapter 4, leaving Nazareth, that is Jesus, leaves his hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So there's a reversal here. There's a contrast and there's a reversal. And so these first two verses here in Isaiah 9 are really critical for us to understand what's said in the rest of the passage. The original state was that of despair. They had been taken over. But now the passage points to hope and to peace. We go from darkness to light. A great light has shined on these people. 
Three reasons for rejoicing are given. In verse number four, it's four, five, and six. And each verse starts with four. You may have noticed as I read that I supplied four in verse number five. In the NIV, it's not there, but it, actually in Hebrew it is. So you have four, four, four. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, that's Gideon, back in the book of Judges. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire, no more fighting, the war will be over. And then verse number six, for to us a child is born. It is in this third reason for rejoicing that we hear these four royal titles the first of which is Wonderful Counselor. If you're familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, uh, and if you can hear it in your head, um, usually Wonderful and Counselor don't go together. You hear in your head, Wonderful Counselor. And then he supplies the article V, um, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In reality, Wonderful and Counselor go together. They're not two separate titles, they go together. Wonderful Counselor or Counselor of Wonders. Wonderful is, in fact, the word that modifies Counselor. And it suggests that this child that they are speaking of will, in fact, have great wisdom, extraordinary wisdom and foresight and planning. Just a note. When the angel of the Lord appeared to uh, a woman who did not have a child, and then he promised her a child, and then she brought her husband, Manoah. They went on to be the parents of Samson. Uh, Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is wonderful. In Psalm 78, he did wonders in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the region of Zoan. The original context here in Isaiah chapter 9 is about a king in Judah. We think it is Hezekiah who was facing the Assyrians and he was successful. Um, But what about the child that is spoken of in verse number 6, the Lord Jesus? He faced the Roman Empire. You will remember, and we'll read it on Christmas Sunday, how that Luke's account is very, very specific about the political system or the arrangement when Jesus was born. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. They're in charge. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, where he belonged to the house and line of David. Mark's account doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. But as it begins the ministry of Jesus, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is royal language, the language of kingdom and of king. And if you read through the Gospels carefully, and I would repeat that carefully, it should become clear that Jesus took issue with those who were in power, those who imagined that they were in fact the ultimate authority and the ultimate power. What we hear in Isaiah chapter 9 is that there will be, in fact, a regime of peace and of well-being. 
and it will replace the old order. It's a new order. The old order is one of violence and oppression. The question then comes up, was Jesus successful? Was he, in fact, a wonderful counselor? It's a good question and one we should consider. I would suggest to you that, in fact, he was. As an agent of, with extraordinary plans and policies, we see him reordering people's lives, and we see it in the following. First of all, Jesus was wise. A wonderful counselor must be wise so that he can and will devise plans. On, and this will show that, in fact, he goes beyond what is normally expected. In fact, a wise person is someone who goes beyond conventional assumptions. I heard genius one time described as someone who sees something before everybody else does. And then after they do, they're like, well, yeah, of course, it, it seems natural. But you have that person who sees, to use a, a, almost a trite phrase now, outside the box, he sees things that are contrary to what people expect, that his ways of doing things are quite counterintuitive. He understands how the world truly works. If you read through the Gospels, you will find Jesus astonishing those around him by his wisdom. During his ministry, when the Sabbath came, this is in Mark 6, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? In Luke, we're told about Jesus as a child. In Luke chapter 2, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then later in chapter 2, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. But there's more to this than simply Jesus being a wise person. It is someone who sees things that the other people don't see. That in fact the other people may in fact refer to as being quite foolish and wrong. Paul tells the Corinthians that the wisdom of the cross contradicts the foolishness of the world. Let me read to you what he writes. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So we see that Jesus 
was wise. He is the wisdom of God. Secondly, he was wonderful. He was extraordinary. We see this in his teaching. It's demonstrated as he has someone, he's the one who has authority. We read this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What we see and hear, if we take the time and effort, is that Jesus' teaching was in fact counterintuitive to normal assumptions. Do you recall how the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy, or be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. After each of these beatitudes, one might be tempted to say or ask, What? I've imagined this many times, that as Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount, as he began to speak, the first word out of his mouth was, Blessed. And people are nudging each other like, this is going to be good. This is going to, we're going to be blessed. And then the next word are the poor in spirit. It's like getting sucker punched. That's not what they were expecting. Blessed are those who mourn. Really? Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Jesus and his teaching contradicted the assumptions common to the human race. And it pointed to a king a governor, a counselor, if you wish, who did not conform to the patterns of abuse and exploitation that people are used to. We hear him say, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You may recall Oscar's uh, work of art that he had upstairs. How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? If the rich people can't be saved, who can be? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. These two words together, possible and impossible, should remind us of something from Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord and two angels visited Abraham and Sarah. And the Lord said, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And she laughs. And then we hear the Lord saying, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The coming of Jesus and his teaching show the possibility of what those in power have told us was in fact impossible. And in that, his teaching is wonderful. Think about familiar parables. The good Samaritan, the lost son, or the prodigal son. 
the workers who receive the same wages that Tom spoke about earlier this year. How contrary to human thinking these are. That's why the Levite and the priest don't help the man who was ambushed by thieves. That's why the older brother doesn't want to go in and welcome his younger brother. It's why those who began working at the beginning of the day complain about those who came later in the day and received the same wages. Jesus is wonderful in that he opens up new possibilities, things we thought, in fact, were impossible. In many ways, we thought they were impossible and people thought them impossible because those in power have told us that they are impossible. Jesus comes into the world as the wonderful counselor and shows us, in fact, that our thinking is quite mistaken. And his teaching demonstrates that. The third thing we see is that his actions display what one might call an incomprehensible wisdom and wonder. As you read the Gospels, even if you've read them many times before, are you not astonished by what he was able to do? He performed actions of rescue and restoration. Actions that normal human reason said, this cannot be done. In Matthew 11, when John heard in prison that what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, are you the wonderful counselor? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In the ministry of Jesus, the old limits, the things that people said were possible, are exposed as, in fact, being fraudulent. We've been sold a bill of goods. Jesus comes into the world, and in fact, he goes against all these limitations. Someone who's blind can't be made to see. Someone who's dead can't be raised from the dead. Someone who's lame can't be made to walk. And in fact, Jesus does precisely that. And by the way, when Jesus... The last thing he said to his, uh, John's disciples before they left, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, someone who's not offended by me, because I don't do things the way you expect. Those who is offended by Jesus, who is offended by Jesus, those who have spelled out what is possible, those who have told us these are the things that are possible, These are the things that are impossible. And when Jesus comes and does the things that are impossible, meaning that they now are possible, then those in power are deeply offended. Jesus has exposed them for the frauds that they are. Which leads to the fourth thing about Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He threatened the established order. The capacity for Jesus, of Jesus, for the wonderful, for the impossible, was in fact a threat to those who were in positions of power. They had set up, if you wish, the arrangements. These are the things you can do and these are the things you cannot do. These are the things that are possible. These are the things that are impossible. And Jesus blows that up. He shatters that. And they are in fact threatened because they are in charge and suddenly they don't seem to be in charge anymore. He is a dangerously subversive. He challenges all normal assumptions. He is a wonderful counselor, a king who doesn't follow the rules, 
who does not accept conventional notions of being a king. He, in fact, inverts what we call power arrangements. Mary saw this even before Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 1, in what we call the Magnificat, among the things she says is, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. It is no wonder that from an early part of Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Because they understood, I think perhaps better than we do all these years later, that he was in fact a threat. They understood by what he taught and by what he did that it would in fact mean the end of their dominance and their power. And they could not have that. And so they put him to death. In Luke 19, every day he was preaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. What is the charge? What is it that they told Pilate about this man, Jesus? He was misleading the people. He was misleading them. We would say yes, because he is the wonderful counselor. And the last thing we see about Jesus as this counselor, this wonderful counselor, is he invites, he has invited his followers to continue his mission. Already in the Sermon on the Mount, we have an alternative view of reality, in which the poor are blessed, as are those who mourn and those who are persecuted, those who have all kinds of evil falsely spoken against them. But does this make sense? It's so familiar to us, but does it make sense? I mean, if you want to have followers, if you want to have disciples, shouldn't you make the program somewhat appealing? In Luke 21, Jesus said to his disciples, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to him. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Wait, what is this? I, I want a wonderful counselor. Someone who makes all things wonderful, at least as I imagine them to be wonderful. No, he is the wonderful counselor who challenged the world's vision of things. And it's not simply a matter of going against the flow, of being contrary. It is seeing things as they truly are. Being able to go beyond what most people accept as right. As what most people assume to be true. He, in fact, was able to see how things are, how things truly work, and what the consequences are if we follow down that same path. If we would listen to and follow the example of the wonderful counselor, we, in fact, will see the world in a different way. Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar in most traditions. This is when the year begins, the four Sundays before Christmas. Traditionally, when Advent began to be celebrated in the 6th century, it was a time of prayer, of fasting, and of repentance. 
This was followed by anticipation, hope, and joy. I think we're inclined to skip the first part, you know, the prayer, the fasting, and the repentance. We want to get to the wonderful part as we imagine it. But we've missed something really important, and that is repentance. The beginning of the year is to begin with repentance. And for most of us, I think we, we think this means I'm saying I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. Um, forgive me, but the Monty Python movie always comes to my head. Uh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. You know, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. We imagine that's what repentance is. But if you look at what the word means in Greek, it is a change of mind, a change of thinking to turn from one way of thinking and to turn to another. I would suggest to you that not just this Christmas, but for a long time now, our thinking has been more like that of the world. It has been more about power, about perhaps even abuse. It's about scheming. The notion of being a wonderful counselor, we somehow squeeze that in to fit, that, that God gives us wisdom to do certain things, to play the game and to do so successfully. And we've missed the point. We need to repent. We need to go back. Our thinking, when we became Christians, we did change our thinking, but slowly but surely we've gone back to the old way of thinking. And we think as the world does. We need to go back and read about Jesus. What he did, what he said. To see him as the wonderful counselor. In the book of Acts, written by Luke, we find that the early followers of Jesus, in fact, did follow his example. They followed the example of Jesus in what they said and in what they did. They saw the world as it truly is. They didn't buy into what the world said about itself. And the result, we read this in Acts chapter 17, when some believers are brought to the uh, civil authorities, and the accusation, this is in Thessalonica, the accusation is made, these men have turned the world upside down. That's the wonderful counselor. Instead of thinking about power and how to get things done, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, we need to think as the wonderful counselor did. And in this Christmas season, as we prepare for the birth of the Savior, I think we need to repent. We need to recognize how corrupted our thinking has become. And go back to the person of Jesus and see how, in fact, in his living, in his speaking, in his doing, he was a wonderful counselor. The Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at the second royal title, Mighty God. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, we want to think correctly. We confess that far too often our thoughts 
are those of those around us. We may use different words, Christian words, but we still see the world the way that they do. The struggle for power, defining what can and cannot be done, what is right and what is not right. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. The child, the son, the wonderful counselor, who in his living and in his speaking and in his doing, turned the world upside down. He went against normal human assumptions. No one wants to be poor, and yet he tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. No one wants to mourn, but he tells us, blessed are those who mourn. He challenged, he continues to challenge our thinking, and by your spirit, open our eyes to see the truth of what is. May we recognize Jesus for who he is. Change our thinking by your grace. Thank you for bringing us together today. This is Georgette's first Sunday with us, and we are thankful for Mike's mom being with us. We have so much to be thankful for. In being thankful, may you give us a clearer vision of what is. May we follow the example of the wonderful counselor. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.